Hey, uh... I love going to concerts. Actually, there's a couple of buddies of mine from my missional community that are here tonight. I went to a concert with them this past week. It was super fun at a little venue up in San Francisco. It was a really good time. Um, I would love to hear some of your favorite concerts that you just shared with other people. So just blurt them out loud. Okay, that's not going to work. Never mind. Raise your hand and I'll, uh, yeah. You two at the Rose Bowl. That is on my bucket list. Yeah, right there. Trans-Siberian Orchestra. Trans-Siberian Orchestra. Awesome. That must have been epic. Yeah, back there. Queen with Paul Rogers. Sorry, say that again. Queen with Paul Rogers. You saw Queen yeah. with Paul Rogers. Wow, amazing. Yeah, Nicholas. Arcade Fire at Bridge School. Arcade Fire. Nice. At Bridge School is an acoustic strip down. Here we go. This is risky. Micah Woody. Nice. I knew I shouldn't have called on you. Yeah, right there, Hannah. Elton John. Elton John. Nice. Yeah, right here. Amberlynn at the Warfield. Amberlynn at the Warfield. Nice. Anybody else? Yeah, Alicia. The Head and the Heart. The Head and the Heart. Where'd you see the Head and the Heart? Where? Oh, Strictly Bluegrass. Nice, nice. San Francisco. Uh, was that a hand or maybe a cu- couple more? Yeah, back there. Wow. <laughs> You're getting applause because you had the courage to admit that. <laughs> Secondly, I would say there is rescue and redemption for you. <laughs> Give your heart to Jesus and all will be well. Yeah, tomorrow. Who? Hologram. You were not there. Were you there? No way. You saw Hologram Tupac. That is amazing. Maybe this is way too fun. Luzada, yeah. Thrice Farewell Tour. That was a tearjerker. Yeah, right here. Fun. fun. Nice. Where did you see fun? At the Greek. I love the Greek. I love the Greek. I saw Bon Iver at the Greek, and that was like top three show all time. Hey, here's why I wanted to ask that question. I've got some friends who say to me, because I love going to shows. I would go to shows like daily if I could. I've got friends who say to me, dude, why do you spend all that money on concert tickets? Why? Like you could just listen to their music on your iPod or in your car on your CD player. And in, first of all, it's way more convenient. Secondly, it's cheaper. Uh, you don't have to be in this cramped, packed, hot space of a venue with all these sweaty people trying to like, like, cause I'm short, right? Trying to like tippy toe for a good view. Like, why do you put yourself through that? And on paper, that argument makes sense. On paper, it makes sense, right? On paper, it's like, you're right. It's just way more convenient for me to listen to their music and it sounds great. I can hear all the details in my headphones. It's convenient. I could lay on the co- in the comfort of my own home on my wonderful bed and just pop in my headphones and listen to the music and it's perfect and convenient and easy and cheap and like why not why drive an hour to get to San Francisco to some dingy little venue to watch a band with a bunch of sweaty people right why put yourself through all of that but those of you who have been to a concert that you loved know why Because there's something about the songs which are at once so familiar, and yet there is something brand new and amazing and transformative even 
There's something about the music that comes alive when you see a band you love or an artist you love live in person. When you see them walk out on stage and they pick up their instruments and they play that first note and the sound just fills that space, there's something about that experience that is utterly different than simply listening to it on your iPod or in your car or at home on a CD. And here is what I would point us toward as we begin this season of Advent. The word Advent just comes from the Latin word Adventus, which simply means coming or arrival. It is a season in the Christian calendar in which we live in the, in deeply in the longing and the hopeful expectancy of Christmas morning, just four short weeks from now, when we will celebrate the fact that God is truly with us, that Jesus came in body and blood and flesh and bone, that he came to be with us. And here's what I would argue, that in the coming of Jesus, if this good book is a song, then in the coming, the arrival of Jesus on Christmas morning as he was born into a peasant family in a cave next to animals in the muck and the mire in the dirt as the baby Jesus was born, fully man and fully God, this book came alive. The song of the scriptures came alive in ways that they were not alive before. And it's not to downplay the significance of this book. It's not to say that the Bible in and of itself does not have power. But it is to say that if Advent were were non-existent, if Christmas morning did not happen, I would argue that this book would remain a flat, untextured, and in many ways, unalive piece of literature. And yet it is in the coming of Jesus, our King and our Savior, that this book, the song of the Scriptures, comes alive. And so, during these four weeks of Advent, we're going to journey through this series called When the Music, or When the Lights Fade and the Music Plays, because you all have been there. You all have felt the tension and the longing and the hopeful expectancy of Advent when you are standing in a dingy little venue waiting for your favorite band to walk out on stage and the house lights are up and some really bad background music is playing. It's usually Daft Punk or something, right? (laughs) Some of you are angry, like, uh, Daft Punk is the best. (laughs) Right? And the music is playing and then something happens. The house lights fade. The room goes dark. And everyone starts screaming like they're 12, right? And then the the, the house music goes away, and you see the silhouette 
of your favorite band or that artist you wanted to see so bad, you see them walk out on stage and you are full of expectancy and anticipation and this hopeful longing. They are about to go. And you're waiting. You're waiting for that first note. You're waiting for the songs that you have heard so many times. You are waiting for them to come alive right in front of you. And this is Advent. This is the season in which you and I exist here and now. This longing, this hopeful expectancy that something, something has come alive. And it has changed everything. And that something is the arrival of Jesus. And so, like Ryan said, during this series, we're going to trek through some songs and some prophecies and prayers that surround the birth story, the narrative of, of Jesus coming to the earth we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke for the entire month, and tonight we're going to begin by looking at a section of Luke. It's Luke chapter 3. If you've got your Bibles, you can open there. Luke chapter 3, in which Luke paints the backdrop. It's almost as though Luke grabs all the guitars and the amps, and he's like walking them out on stage. You ever been to a show where the guitar tech walks out first to put the guitars out on the guitar stand and he fools everybody because everyone thinks it's the person they came to see you ever been there I'm, i've been there right like where i'm like a 12 year old girl the moment the guitar tech comes out i'm like ah, what's happening right and then it's not it's just some dude guitar tech right like, i'm just tuning the guitar man and he puts the guitar down this is what luke is doing he, he's setting the pieces for us and then he alludes to this ancient prophecy that's found in a book uh, called Isaiah. That's what you and I know it as, the book of Isaiah. And so that's where we're going to be tonight, and we're going to discover, hopefully together, the sort of hope it has for us today. The writer Alexander Dumas said once, he wrote once, never forget that until the day God will deign to reveal the future to man, all human wisdom is contained in these two words, wait and hope. And so tonight, as we jump into the, the story of Luke and the prophecy of Isaiah, my hope is that we might all together collectively as a community be ushered into that place where we are not simply comfortable with, but where we embrace this season of waiting and hoping. Christmas morning when we celebrate the coming of the Messiah. This is Luke chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. Now hang with me. The very beginning of this text is a little weird. Like it's just a bunch of weird names and places and characters that you may or may not be familiar with, but this is important for us today. Luke 3 1 to 6. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, 
Herod, tetriarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetriarch of Eteria and Trachonitis, and Licinius, tetriarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. This John is the John that many of you know as John the Baptist, the crazy guy with the beard who ate bugs and wore animal skin, Jesus' cousin. John, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he, John the Baptist, went into all the country around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And here Luke turns to the prophecy of Isaiah. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in. Every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight. The rough ways smooth. And all people will see God's salvation. Now we'll get to the prophecy in a moment. But first, the kind of weird, obscure characters and places. Why does Luke mention Herod and Caesar? and Pontius Pilate, and Caiaphas, among others. Luke is placing his audience in a particular time and place. Luke is making certain that his audience, and in turn us, as readers of this text today, Luke is making certain that we are aware that when Jesus entered the human story, he did not simply enter in some random point in time. He entered at a very specific time, a time and a very specific place, a place of great need, a time of great need. Tiberius Caesar is the emperor of Rome. The word Caesar is actually another word for emperor or king. Rome is the empire that rules the known world at the time. This includes all of the Jewish people, Jesus' very people, the nation of Israel. Rome rules. At the height of their power, they ruled from modern-day England all the way down to modern-day India. This is before airplanes and cars and tanks. I mean, just think about that. And Rome is an empire that rules with an iron fist. They lord it over all of their colonies with sword and spear and shield. They forcefully coerce those that they rule over, the oppressed and the marginalized peoples of the territories that they conquer with sword and spear. This empire lords it over them and forcefully coerces out of them allegiance not to God but to Caesar. This is Tiberius Caesar. He is the emperor of the largest and most fierce empire at the time. Pontius Pilate is the governor of this region in which Jesus would conduct much of his public ministry, Judea. Pontius Pilate is a, uh, the governor who has been placed there over Judea by the empire of Rome. Herod, Philip, and Lysanias, these are puppet kings that Rome has put in power to just calm down the, the minor rebellions that might pop up here and there. 
These are puppet kings who have no power whatsoever. They are simply put into position by Rome to be used as pawns on the chessboard to rule their empire from a distance. Annas and Caiaphas, they're high priests. These are high priests whose business it is to run the business of religion. The high priests are essentially the religious elite. When Jesus enters the story, if you wanted to have a connection with God, you could not have a direct connection. You would have to go to the temple and you would have to offer sacrifices, a dove or a goat or something less or something more depending on what you needed and what you had done. And the high priest was the one who ran this entire system. The high priest is the religious elite. And so Luke sets up the backdrop. He is reminding his audience and he is reminding us that Jesus entered the story at a time when people were, one, in desperate need, and two, they were surrounded by false hope. The false hope of an emperor called Caesar in Rome who promised peace but really brought nothing but oppression and bloodshed. The promise of hope in a governor named Pontius Pilate who cared very little about the people themselves. False hope in puppet kings like Herod and Philip and Lysanias who had absolutely no power and really were there simply to live as luxurious of a life as they could for themselves. False hope in high priests who often were good men but were simply put in positions of, of um, extraordinary circumstances where really, I mean, how could one man dictate the connection to God between others and God himself? Who were drawn in, high priests drawn in to this religious system that wasn't the way God originally intended for humanity to relate to him. So the question for us tonight has to be asked, who are our Caesars, our governors and our puppet kings? Who are our religious elite that we put our false hope in? What empire lords it over you? What empire has control over your affection? What false hope, what empire holds your allegiance is it money financial security is it status is it the right job or the right spouse is it that tension that deep dark tension inside of you that nobody knows about that you simply cannot seem to get rid of or let go of what is it what false hopes hold power over us? What false hopes have we trusted in today? Because the story of Advent and the story of this particular prophecy that Luke mentions from the book of Isaiah is a story that reminds us and Advent itself, this season reminds us that our allegiance belongs to no one but Jesus. 
Luke's version of this prophecy, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. This prophecy and this language was language that was used in preparation for the welcoming of a king. And John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, is preparing the way for the welcoming of a king. But that king is not Caesar, and it is not Pontius Pilate, or Herod, or Philip, or Lysanias, or any high priest. That king is the son of a Jewish carpenter and a virgin teenage Jewish mother who was born into a ho-dunk family in a ho-dunk town called Bethlehem in a cave amongst the animals in the dirt and the grime. And John the Baptist prepares the way for that king to come. And in the prophecy of Isaiah, we see fully what happens when this king shows up on the scene. This is Isaiah 40, verses 1 to 5. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory, the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all the people, all people will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. When the rightful king, the promised savior, shows up on the scene and we prepare the way, the mountains and hills are laid low, the valleys are raised up, the rugged and rough places are made smooth, and then the glory of the Lord shows up. In the original language of this prophecy, Hebrew, the word for glory is the Hebrew word kavod. And kavod finds its roots in the Hebrew word kavad, which means weight or heaviness. In fact, the Jewish understanding, which is the original understanding of this text in Isaiah, the Jewish understanding of what you and I call glory in the English, the Hebrew word kavod, is a physical, tangible reality. It is not some ethereal, ambiguous idea like, oh, just glory, the glory of God is kind of in this place, although that is also true. The Hebrew understanding, the Jewish understanding is that the glory of God, the kavod of God is a physical reality. A couple of stories just to point you to this truth. 
In Exodus chapter 40, there's a story of this man named Moses who was the leader of the Jewish people at the time, and he enters this tent where he goes to meet with God. And here's what the story tells us. Exodus 40, 34 to 35. Then the cloud, which represents the glory of God, the kavod of God. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the kavod, the glory of the Lord, filled the tabernacle. And here's what happens. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it, and the glory, the kavod of the Lord, filled the tabernacle. Moses goes to meet with God. God's glory, his kavod, fills the tent, and Moses physically cannot go inside. There is a physical reality in the tent that keeps Moses from entering in. There's another story in 2 Chronicles chapter 5 where the Jewish people are celebrating the rebuilding of a temple of the temple and they're singing and they're worshiping and here's what happens 2 Chronicles 5:13 to 14 Then the temple of the Lord was filled with a cloud, again, representing the glory, the kavod of God, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory, the kavod of the Lord filled the temple. The priests could not go inside and do the things they needed to do because the temple was filled up with a physical presence, the kavod, the glory of God. And so when Isaiah prophesies, that when the true king comes, that we are waiting for in eager anticipation, the glory, the kavod of God will show up. And it is not an ambiguous, ethereal, kind of out there idea. It is not a concept or an ideology. The glory of God that is to be revealed is physical. It is real. It is tangible. As tangible as the person next to you on the left and the right. It is real like the food you eat and the air you breathe. The kavod of God. And what we see is the fulfillment and the realization of this prophecy in the body and bones and blood, the flesh, the hair and the skin and the two eyes and the nose and the two ears and the mouth, the fingers and the toes, the hands and feet of the baby in the manger, Jesus who came in flesh, in blood to be with us. That's the fulfillment of this ancient prophecy that our God is not distant on a cloud watching, judging, condemning, but that our God says, I will enter your story in a way that you cannot deny. In the form, in the shape of Jesus himself, who was fully God and fully man, who was so human that when he goes to die on the cross and comes back to life three days later, defeating sin and death for us, one of the first things he says is, I'm hungry, let's eat. That when his friends after his resurrection ask for proof, he doesn't fly off into the, into the stratosphere or split the seas or part the skies. He says, come over here. Put your hands in that, see that giant gaping hole? That's where the nail went into my flesh. The glory of God, the kavod of God, realized, fulfilled, actualized 
in the flesh and bones of Jesus, our Savior. And so, if Jesus came in flesh and bone, in body and blood, to let us know that God is not distant, that God is not an idea or a concept, but that God is truly with us. If that Jesus came that way once and has promised to come that way again, then what does the prophecy tell us is true about our lives today? As we wait and hope, what is it that we are actually hoping for? Um, some of us are experiencing anxiety and stress. Some of us are living lives in distress, especially the holidays. The holidays can be really, really tough. I know that. My wife and I were driving up to uh, visit my mom on Thanksgiving. We had lunch with her on Thanksgiving, and uh, on our drive up, literally within the span of about a minute, we saw three different drivers on 101 smoking cigarettes as they were driving. This is on Thanksgiving morning. We're like, man, how's... And like the look on their faces was like... <sighs> I just like couldn't get enough. And I just thought like, man, what a bummer that on this day you're so stressed. And we saw not just one, not two, three. Three drivers just puffing away as they're driving to wherever it is they're driving to. And we just thought, man... This is so true, isn't it? This is our world. Just because we start playing the Christmas music and putting up the Christmas lights doesn't fix our problems. And many of us are dealing with anxiety and distress that actually doesn't go down. It gets heightened in a lot of ways in this season because of the presence of family or the lack thereof. And if that is you, Brandon, would you just put up the Isaiah 40 passage again? Just leave that up there. If that is you, the promise of this prophecy, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Some of us are experiencing uh, guilt or shame or brokenness because of things we've done or things that have been done to us that we are ashamed of or embarrassed about. Some of us are dealing with a guilt, shame, and brokenness of addictions that we just can't seem to break. And for those of us who are there, the prophecy that is fulfilled and realized in the coming of Jesus, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for. Some of us are in the valley of depression and hurt, and the valley is dark, and the valley often feels like death, and the valley seems endless, and we feel alone, and it's deep and wide, and we feel like we'll never, we'll never, we'll never get out. Every valley shall be raised up 
Some of us are facing impossible situations, mountains we simply cannot climb on our own. Circumstances that seem so impossible. The mountains, the impossible mountain before us is so tall, it's so grand, it's so wide, so large, so huge that we we can't even imagine what's on the other side. And for those of us facing those impossible situations, the promise of the prophecy is that every mountain and hill will be made low. Many of us are navigating through rough and rugged patches of life. Things never seem to get figured out, and it never gets easier. Situations just snowball into these giant, rough patches that seem to go on endlessly. And for those of us in that place, the promise of the prophecy is that the rough ground shall become level, and the rugged places will become a plain. I'm going to ask Micah and Michelle and Josh to come back up. And we are going to sing our way out of here. Because, like we said in the beginning, uh, there is something about music that brings things to life. And this is different. Because as talented as Micah and Michelle are, and they haven't led on a Sunday PM service for a while, so this is really fun to have them here tonight. But as talented as they are, this is different because this isn't a show. It's not a concert. We're not here for them or for really even one another. We're not here for a person. We are here for an encounter uh, that hopefully will transform us and change us. And so as Micah and Michelle play, as, as, as they just kind of lead us and fill this room with sound that hopefully does something in your heart, Um, Here is my invitation for all of us together. First, there is communion in the front of the room and in the back of the room. Um, If if Jesus is Lord and Savior in your life, then you are welcome to partake. And here is what you need to know. The prophecy of Isaiah reminds us the tension and the expectancy, the hopeful longing of Advent reminds us that Jesus came in flesh and bone as real as the, blood, the bread and the wine that you will partake of as you celebrate communion. That the promise of Advent is that God has not left us alone. That God has not left us to be as he watches from a distance. But God has come, Emmanuel, God with us. Truly, truly with us. And that he is offering to each and every one of us comfort, payment for sin. That the valleys in which we trek will be raised up. The mountains and hills that stand before us that seem impossible will be made low. And that as rough and rugged as life may become or already is and has been for however long, the promise of God with us is that it will all be smooth out in due time that Jesus has come once and that he is coming again. He's coming again. And so you and I stand. We stand 
against the backdrop of all that has been in our lives, as dark and, and, and destructive as some of it may have been, but coming to the forefront of that broken backdrop of our lives is the beauty of this season. Hope, preparation as we invite God in, rejoicing in the belief that Jesus has come and he is coming again. And as we sing, you can sing, you can pray, you can listen, you can go and be prayed for in the back. You can find a corner of the room. You can find a spot outside under the evening sky. But whatever you do, remember that God is with us. He is with you. Jesus has come. He is coming. And strangely and wonderfully, he is already here. Would you stand? I'm going to pray this prayer over you. It's a prayer by a theologian named Walter Brueggemann. Would you just close your eyes and let me pray this over you. And then we will sing our way out of here tonight. This prayer is so often the reality, the truth of my broken heart. In our secret yearning, God, we wait for your coming. And in our grinding despair, we often doubt that you will. And in this privileged place, we are surrounded by witnesses who yearn more than do we, and by those who despair more deeply than do we. So give us the grace and the impatience to wait for your coming to the bottom of our toes and to the edges of our fingertips. The truth is we do not want our several worlds to end, but come in your power and come in your weakness in any case and make all things new. Amen.